Another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, September the 15th, 2023, and that means it is time for the Expert Council Show of the Week. This week, in the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights, we talk about blowback from U.S. military invention and the 9-11 attacks 22 years later. And COVID tyrants should be hiding in shame, not attempting to restart their abuse. You'll hear from Dr. Paul Damick Adams and Chris Rossini and that all together. Decrypting a CAT scan of the neck and spine and dietary adjustments for inflammation with Dr. Ken Berry. This is an interesting one because this is some stuff that I knew but I didn't know quite as bluntly and specifically as Ken puts it. You get this CAT scan result back and there's a whole bunch of shit on there and it sounds like you're about to die and... Most of it's just, well, it's what it looks like when you're next 54 years old. And why do they do it that way? Well, Ken will tell you. Nick Ferguson has a new apprenticeship program you can get along, involved with. He also is going to talk today about air pruning for growing trees. Tim, the tool man cook, will talk about backfeeding water into your house from something like a water storage tank. I know you can do this because I have. Um, Sean Mills will talk about using solar-powered fans to ventilate a shed in an off-grid situation. And what happens if you're out on the trail in the real backcountry? I mean, you are hell and gone from a paved road, and you're having problems, and you have to take out your electronic device and mash the SOS button. Jessica Dixie Mills recently had to do that. Now, she's fine, but this was a real learning experience, and it's a, it's a good impetus that if you're going to be hiking in the backcountry at all, I don't care if it's day hiking, you need to have some way to call for help beyond a cell phone that may very well not work when you're in a place like that. And I'm going to talk about something we haven't gone into deeply in a long time. We had a guest on about it, I guess, a couple months ago. Hydroponics. But I'm going to talk about small-scale indoor hydroponics and why I literally feel that every single person wants to call themselves a prepper should have a small-scale indoor hydroponics system, even if they just do it long enough to learn how to run it, dump the water out, fertilize the bushes with it, put everything away, and just have it, just in case times ever get tough again. Because isn't it interesting that during the COVIDs, one of the things that was always wiped out when you went to the grocery store were, were salad greens. Isn't that interesting? It have been one of the last things, but it was one of the first things. And why? Well, because people don't know how to grow their own damn food because it's one of the easiest things you can grow. Not only will they eat fresh basil in January and February, it can put good food on the table year-round for not much money. We're going to talk about it from that. So when I talk about this today, I'm not going to talk about it from a standpoint of like, this is something I do every day of my life. Talk about something maybe you do every winter, you have the skill set, and you don't put that much effort into it, and the only point is to provide a few salads a week for yourself with minimal effort and minimal investment as well. So that's what we got on the docket for you today. Real quick reminder before I bring Dr. Paul's team on, tomorrow morning, 
0930 Central Standard Time. Tickets for TSP 23 will go on sale. At 0930, I will drop a link into the Telegram channel and the Telegram group for TSP. Ten minutes later, at 0940 Central Standard Time, if any tickets are remaining, I will put a post out on the main blog, I will put it out on social media, etc. There's a good chance it will sell out in those ten minutes. So if you are not on Telegram, you should be, and you better be paying attention Tomorrow morning, not tomorrow, yeah, tomorrow morning, 0930. I said not tomorrow because I'm actually recording this on Thursday to get ahead for the week. Uh, but 0930 on Saturday, it will get dropped like a rock, like a hot potato. And you either better get it or it will be gone, and it happens every year. And this is going to be a hell of a great event. With that, let's go ahead and hear from the Ron Paul uh, Liberty Highlights of the Week. So today is an appropriate day to search for the truth. Uh I think it's called 9-11. Yeah. Boy, what a, what a day that was. You remember where you were on 9-11? Reading the newspaper uh, less than a half a mile from the Pentagon. I, uh, felt the, uh, I felt the crash into the building. Oh, boy. It, yeah. it was something else. So, uh, but 9-11, from the very beginning, there were questions, but not real questions. You know, everybody had to come together, and, you know, and this wasn't a time to be in detail about exactly who was to blame, but it didn't take long to figure out. And there still remains a lot of unanswered questions. Uh, of course, we had a commission to study this. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in my opinion, in general, a commission coming out of Washington usually is either to hide the truth yeah. uh, or, uh, you, you know, co cover it up or change it or, or, or get somebody out of trouble. If somebody went wrong on a strategic problem, yeah. uh, they'll, they'll hide who, who was the cause of it. The one thing I remember within the first week that we had a major vote, and that yeah. was on the Patriot Act. Yep, yep. And that was so disturbing to me, but they were quite frank about it. it there were no hearings. Yeah. It was ready. Oh, say, well, we've had this prepared. Uh, we, we, it's been on this shelf. So they've reviewed it. Everybody knew it. Everybody knew what was in it except the people who were voting on it. Yeah. But there was no way people were going to oppose it. I remember sitting beside one member of Congress who sympathetic to our views, and uh, he, he was voting uh, for it, and I was voting against it. I said, why are you voting for this? He says, oh, I, I know you're right. It's, it's a bad bill and all this stuff. He said, but how am I going to go home and explain it to my constituents to be against the Patriot Act <laughs> under these conditions? Of course, my suggestion was uh, rather frank. Uh, well, that's your job. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that would be a strange thing. Yeah, that's absolutely true. You know, on the Patriot Act, it's, it reminds you of that great saying, I think it was from the Clinton administration, uh, never let a good crisis go to waste. You yeah, know, they had it right there on the shelf, just like they had Iraq War II, right there on the shelf. They dusted it off and put it into motion. Um, the commissions were there really to reinforce the mainstream narratives, right. and that's what they did. Well, you know, what you did is you blurted out the truth, and it's like everyone in a room, and someone raises their hand and says the truth, everyone's thinking that, but no one dares to say it. You said... They came over here because we've been over there killing them for years and years and years, and it finally snapped, and they finally realized that. And then, remember, Julian, that's an extraordinary thing to say. You're blaming America. And they said, no, I'm not. I'm blaming our foreign policy. That whole thing about COVID and inoculations and vaccinations, you know, was so bizarre and weird and was unnecessary and very harmful that they would never, that you'd think they'd want to hide it. 
But now they're bringing it out again. I'm with you, Dr. Paul. I don't think uh, it's going to be easy to pull off, if, if so. But, you know, the irrationality of all this nonsense is astounding. You know, when we read Joe Biden had uh, multiple injections and boosters and boosters and has COVID for the second time now, you know, that alone, you know, disqualifies this whole thing. But then we read, oh, no, the FDA is set to approve another booster. And the White House uh, press secretary says, we know that these vaccines work. You know, you have to stay up to date. First off, if you're using the words stay up to date, you're admitting that they don't work. You know, it's not it's obviously not a vaccine. It's a treatment. And the treatment doesn't work because people are getting all of these and still getting COVID. I mean, it's 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 reached comical levels. And, uh, you know, it's hard to you know, we're dealing with now irrationality. Nobody, unfortunately, was held accountable for this whole COVID nonsense. So why not try it again? And they are, and I'm seeing celebrities, they're putting COVID tests at their pocket. Why are you even testing? What are you doing? You know, and, but they're doing it, and they're talking about cases in schools. Like, so what with the cases? You remember all that ticker nonsense that they had on the TV, scaring everybody for no reason whatsoever? So they're at least, they're trying here and there, like trial balloons, to see what sticks. But, you know, if this is allowed again, then this will continue every year. Every single year, they will repeatedly renew their abuse on us. And that's the way authoritarians work. And, you know, we don't have to just worry about those authoritarians in Washington. It's the people in our neighborhood. It's the goofball at the supermarket that you have to worry about that's screaming at you to put a mask on. You know, so, but he's only going to do that if he feels empowered to do that. And that's why the word no better come off the lips of most of us <laughs> otherwise they're just going to continue this stuff repeatedly year in year after year well I, I completely agree that right now the last thing we should be seeing is these people politicians bureaucrats etc coming out and trying to restart the covid train when what they should be doing is hiding with shame for what they have done but it's what we would expect I think it's much ado about nothing, though. I think the average person is just done. I don't think you can restart this particular um, freaking BS operation. Not in full. I think you need at least half the people to go along with it, and I think right now getting 20% is a stretch. Now, there, there's a good 10-15% that are complete loons, and everybody would still be masking if it's up to them, but it ain't happening. Ron Paul's piece, though, you know, it hits, it hits back to when I used to believe there was some way to politically fix shit in this country. But w what a perfect example of why you can't. So you got a, a fellow congressman that knows what the Patriot Act is, knows how terrible it is, knows that once you put this thing in play, it's never going away. It will only grow and get worse. It will be abused. It will trample on people's rights. And his reason for voting for it is, but I might not get reelected if I don't. And I'm going to say something. The odds that whoever the hell this clown was wouldn't have got reelected over that are about a thousand to one. About a thousand to one. No, what he was really saying is I don't want to piss off the party because then I won't be able to get the shit I want done the way I want it done because there's a position in Congress called a whip. If you ever wonder what the whip does, the whip literally whips up the votes. Whips up the votes. So somebody had a conversation with that clown about something he wanted done and hey... You want this done, then we want that done. That's how that works. That's the game. 
That's the game. But I'll tell you, anybody that voted for that is a traitor to the Constitution of the United States of America. An absolute traitor. And should at minimum be in a prison for 25 years. Minimum. It's never going to happen. But that's just how I feel. Let's move on. And let's talk to Dr. Ken Berry now about a CAT scan on a middle-aged man's neck and a whole bunch of stuff on it that sounds just awful. And why it really isn't. And why people that do things like read CAT scans for a living put every single thing that they can come up with down on the results, where that comes from, and at the same time, can eating keto or carnivore help reduce inflammation? Ken, take it away. Hey, Jack Spearco and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from Eric. Eric uh, attached a copy of his CAT scan of his neck and uh, has the following question. Given the info below, can you please tell me if this is something I can correct or reverse using diet or exercise? Had a CAT scan related to a head injury. The findings are, for the most part, unrelated to that injury, but telling of other issues. I'm 53 years old. I work full-time in an office, but spend the rest of my time building my homestead. Oh, I love that hobby. Obviously, I will be seeing my doctor and specialist regarding this, but want to go uh, into those appointments more informed. So the CAT scan, I'm just going to read the findings of this. Uh, the craniocervical junction is normal. Cervical spine alignment is normal. Moderate degenerative changes in the mid to lower cervical spine with spondylotic ridges indenting the spinal canal at C5, C6, and C6, C7 levels causing some degree of spinal canal and bilateral neuroforaminal narrowing. Moderate multi-level facet arthropathy left greater than right, dextroscoliosis, cervical spine. So the dextroscoliosis just means you've got a little rightward tilt to your cervical spine. That's not pathology. That's nothing to worry about. And the only reason I'm including this one in the expert council, because for those of you who don't have a CAT scan of your neck, you may think, well, this doesn't apply to me. But I want to tell you something. Uh, this is a normal CAT scan of the neck for a uh, 50-something-year-old person. Uh, Eric is 53. This is a normal CAT scan, but here's, the, here's what's going on in the background that you may not understand. Radiologists who read CAT scans and MRIs, they never actually see the patient. They have no relationship with the patient, so they are the easiest doctor in the world to sue. And radiologists know this. They're trained this in, in their training, and therefore they go out of their way to mention every single possible thing that they can see on the CAT scan or the X-ray or the MRI to cover their asses from a legal standpoint. And that, that makes very good sense. But when a patient reads this type of thing, they're like, oh, holy crap, degenerative. So moderate degenerative changes in the mid to lower cervical spine and spondylotic ridges. So that is completely normal at the age of 53, especially if you've been eating a high inflammatory, high carb diet for a few decades. You're, and, and you've been, you know, a hardworking man or woman, you're going to have those kinds of changes. Those are not abnormal, but they sound very abnormal to you. And indeed, to many primary care doctors, they'll also sound very abnormal. And they may want to start you on an anti-inflammatory like Celebrex or, or ibuprofen or, or diclofenac or something like that. You don't need any of that. If you haven't already done so, 
you need to adopt and stick to a strict proper human diet. That's going to reduce your levels of chronic inappropriate inflammation all over your body, including in your neck. Now, you didn't say in your question whether you actually have neck pain or not. And my answer to that would be, if yes, then after three months of a proper human diet, you're going to notice your neck pain is much better because the swelling from the chronic inappropriate inflammation is going to go down and your nerves are going to have more room to float around in their foramen, which makes nerves very happy. If you say, well, no, I don't really have any neck pain, then that should be a hint to you that this is okay. This is not a big deal. Uh, there's nothing on this CAT scan finding that makes me go, oh, my God. But so for any of you guys who have had a CAT scan or an MRI of your lumbar spine, your lower back, your cervical spine, your neck, or any part of your body, and it says degenerative changes noted or degenerative joint something or other, if you're over the age of 40, that just means you've got early arthritis. That's all it means. It sounds terrible. It sounds like you're crumbling and falling apart, but that's not that's not what it means in doctor speak. That just means you've got you've got early to early mild to moderate osteoarthritis in those areas. It's just arthritis. It's nothing to worry about. And eating a proper human diet is going to decrease the swelling and inflammation so much that even if you currently are having pain, your pain is going to be much, much better after three months of a proper human diet. But I just wanted to touch on that for all you guys, that degenerative disc disease, degenerative joint disease, that just means arthritis. That's all it means. And when you call it arthritis, that doesn't sound very imposing or very dangerous. But when you say you've got degenerative disc disease, people shit their pants, rightfully so, because that sounds like the house is falling down. But it's just doctor speak for arthritis. Hope this helps. This is Dr. Barry. See you next time. Well, good to know. And, and I can tell you for a fact, I've, I've read reports like this on my wife and myself and been like, oh, it is that. And you go look everything up and go, this is bullshit. Um, I got it, but I didn't really get that it was about lawsuits. And I didn't really get that it was specifically about lawsuits because these are doctors practicing MDs that have to carry malpractice insurance, like all doctors, that never lay eyes or hands on a patient. And in some way, through our litigious system, it makes them very subjective to lawsuits. The overall concept, though, is known as defensive medicine. And I've known about this literally for decades. I went into, for a while, I was actually studying on a path toward a naturopathic uh, medicine degree. And I ended up deciding not to continue pursuing it because the cost and time I began to realize was never going to pay off at the end of it. But I'm still glad that I did it. And in some of my early coursework, um, there was a lot of information about this. If I remember right, there was a ton of it in one of Andrew Weil's books. There was also a tremendous amount of it in the, a book by an ND and PhD named Linda Page. And I don't remember the name of the book. But if I remember, if it was, was her book that I'm remembering, she went into great lengths about how doctors will order all the tests, just all the tests. Any test, you go in, you have to think, ah, you should get an MRI for that. Ah, you should get a CAT scan for that. Ah, you get like, even when there was all the blood panels, all of it. And it was from a standpoint of a couple things. One, they made money doing it. Two, it... It basically prevented them from being sued later because something was missed because they didn't do it. And three, they knew most patients would just go ahead and do it because, especially at the time, 
the the insured rate was very high. Insurance cost a lot less at the time. And most of those types of tests were either completely covered by insurance or had something like a $25 copay. So you could order a test that down on paper was $1,100. The customer paid $25. The insurance company paid $300. The doctor made $50. It was completely unnecessary, time-consuming, waste of time for the patient, waste of medical resources. But hey, at least I'm not going to get sued. So this is nothing new. It's just another version of it. Uh, thanks to Ken for letting us know about that. Next up... Nick Ferguson on air pruning and uh, propagation of trees. Nick Ferguson here with an expert counsel answer on air pruning. But first, I wanted to let the audience know I have a special announcement. There is an apprenticeship opportunity coming up with Homegrown Liberty. So head over to homegrownliberty.com and you'll see the latest blog post with details. And I'm going to have a few consulting slots available on either side of the upcoming fall TSP workshop. So, if you're in Texas somewhere, shoot me an email with consulting in the subject line to get put on the notification list for that consulting tour. I'm probably going to be down around Houston, heading up somewhere through Waco or Austin, somewhere in that region, heading up to Jack's, and then could end up in northern Texas and eastern Texas, wrapping back down around through central, eastern, I don't know, it just all depends on what kind of uh, answers I get. Um, but yeah, if you're interested in that, send me an email. Uh, yeah, that's all I have for the announcements. On to the question. Um, this is a question for Nick Ferguson. Have you ever used air pruning beds to produce large amounts of tree and shrub seedlings? Do they work well? Is there any downsides to using them? I want to produce a ton of tree and shrub saplings but won't have a place to plant them for their first year. I've seen videos of people using small air prune beds to produce lots of saplings in a compact space and semi-portable container, which looks ideal for my situation. Is there any reason to not use them or downsides to watch out for? Thank you, Dempsey. Um, <clears throat> well... I've not used them, but I am considering it. Uh, the main drawback I see is that without regular watering, they dry out really quickly, and you can suffer a catastrophic loss in a, basically a day or two if your watering system fails and you're unaware of the problem. It could potentially be too late to fix the issue by the time you notice there even is a problem. Personally, I prefer to design less possible failure points into any system, especially if I'm relying on it for income, or if there's kind of like a significant financial outlay, or if the risk is like an extra year or two of lost time. Two years, a year, is expensive in my books. I've been there. I've done that a couple times. <laughs> lost a couple years of productivity because what I set up, wasn't robust enough to deal with failures, mostly because of hubris. I thought I knew better. I won't let this fail. I'll check on them. Blah, blah, blah. Well, Murphy just laughs when you say things like that, let me tell you. Uh, that's personal experience speaking. So, learn from my mistakes. Um, make sure you design robust systems that can survive some technological or human error. Uh, but with all that said, I'm still actually strongly considering setting up some beds uh, because the upside is pretty big. You end up with way easier harvesting because, I mean, you're just pulling material out from, like, a six-inch 
thick bed that's potting mix and you can reuse it. You just rinse the roots off, reuse the potting mix. And I mean, it's loose, it's fluffy, it's easy to deal with. And, you know, with a little bit of smarts, you can stack bottom heating to root cuttings over the winter. And you can have root systems develop enough to get basically, potentially, a double harvest of trees yearly from the same grow space. Summer softwood cuttings under mist, harvested midwinter or early winter, depending on what your winters are like and how long they are. And then immediately stick winter hardwood cuttings and harvest those late winter to spring. That alone is tempting enough for me. Now, because my winters are so short, I wouldn't be able to really get away with a double harvest unless I was putting winter hardwoods that were super, super fast to root. Otherwise, the root systems wouldn't be developed enough by the time uh, that kind of late dormant season is wrapping around when I need to pull them out still dormant with roots. So, short answer... Um, I'm considering it. Uh, you might want to be careful about it if you are a little bit more prone to error or if you deal with sickness more often or if your helpers are less observant than you um, or you know if you don't have something like a redundant uh, moisture meter that can send you an alarm. So if you're tech savvy, I'm not. Um, you might be able to implement something like that that could tell you, hey, there's a problem, check on it. So I know that's kind of a short answer, but I hope it gives you enough confidence to get out there and, like I always say, do good things. Well, great stuff from Nick, and I do have a link in the show notes. There's a bullet point that says a skinny on air pruning and apprenticeship opportunity, Nick Ferguson, and right next to his name is a link that says Nick's uh, Apprenticeship Program. Click that link. You can go learn more about it. And if you're in the, you know, like in my area, Texas, uh, and you're looking for a permaculture consultant, uh, taking Nick up on the fact that he's in this area during that time would be a really smart thing to do because there is a certain cost to have somebody drive a couple states of distance to come to your house to look at it, no matter what they're doing. There's a what you'd call a truck roll cost. And when something's blended with another trip and you're seeing multiple people, that pushes that initial truck roll cost down. So, you know, think about taking Nick up on it. And I'll tell you, every person I've spoken to that's had Nick out, that's followed the advice that he has given, has said what they paid him is nothing compared to what it saved them. Uh, next up, Tim Toolman Cook on backfeeding water to your house uh, from a water storage tank. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back to answer another question for the expert council, so let's dive right in. Today's question is, can you backfeed a water supply to your home? Tim the Toolman question mark. Details. My home is on a community well, which isn't always reliable. In the event of a water supply issue... Can I shut off the main water valve to the house, open up an outside garden hose tap, hose tap, sorry, and use a small pump, RV style or perhaps sprinkler type pump, to pull from my storage supply and repressurize my house? I have a water softener, so I would assume I would need to isolate that from the pressure as it would be pressurizing back into the system. I've also considered a more permanent setup. Main supply goes into the storage supply, storage supply is pumped into a pressure tank, pressure tank ultimately feeds the house. 
This way, if the water supply goes out, I can use the stored supply without any change. With a water level shut off, backup supply is constantly recharged from the main water supply. Does this sound crazy? Thanks in advance, Common Man Kenny. First off, no, I don't think it sounds crazy. Uh, I think you might be overthinking it just a little, not by much. I'm just a a you know big fan of the old keep it simple principle. And so let's talk about this a little bit. First off, you're on the, the right. Okay, let's back up the biggest concern. And that's backfeeding. Of course, the word backfeeding itself always scares people when you're talking about generators. But um, whether, whether you have a check valve in your water line going out to the street or not, if you're going to backfeed your home with a, some sort of external water supply so you don't get yourself in trouble and you don't blow all your water back up the city lines, make sure you shut off your main supply valve where the water comes into the house. If you don't do that, you're going to end up, yeah, like I said, pressurizing the lines or sending what the town considers contaminated water back up there and you don't want to open yourself up to a lawsuit or anything you know what they don't know doesn't matter but i'm just trying to cover your butt you know okay so turn off your main shut off and then if you're doing this temporarily if this was like say from a rain barrel or something outside then hook into your outdoor faucet and supply it that way now you want to create a more permanent kind of setup so yes first thing i would do is definitely bypass the softener put in a bypass valve or something there. That's the first thought. My even bigger concern would be your water heater. If you have an electric water heater, you want to make sure that the water pressure, the water level, sorry, stays all the way to the top. Because for those who don't know, if your water level drops too low in an electric water heater and it goes to turn on, guess what? Burns out all or the exposed electric elements that are in there. So be careful of that. Now, what would I do? Um, well, I've been toying with the idea of some underground rainwater storage here, and I may just do that next year because I'm going to be adding a bathroom on to the house. So this would be a really good way to tie in some rainwater storage as well. But I love the idea of having, you know, an IBC tote or something in your basement or in, you know, a heated storage area where you could pump municipal water, rainwater, stored water, whatever you want to have a truck bring in pure water, doesn't matter but have that extra kind of battery of water sitting there. So I love that. Now, if you want to pump it back into your home, I would suggest using exactly what you said, something like an RV pump. It's not going to give you super high pressure, but what it's going to do is give you regular steady flow. Because if you were to use, say, like a, a jet pump or something without a pressure tank, it's going to go up and down, up and down. If you've ever... Uh, been at a house where the pressure tank uh, blew the uh, the inner liner or something, or it, it failed, that's what you get. You get that up and down pressure. You don't want that. It's going to create air in the lines. It's going to cause all kinds of problems. So yes, an RV pump would work great for that. If you don't already have a pressure tank, I would not bother installing one. I would just get yourself you know, a 12-volt uh, RV pump and then figure out a way to run it in the house. Beyond that... I don't think that I would set it up so that that pump and pressure tank and tank is being used all the time. I mean, the one benefit I do see is the fact that the water is always going to be fresh in there, but you're introducing a whole a whole other level of complexity that I don't think you need on a regular basis. I would put some sort of three-way gate valve or three-way check valve, something like that, bypass valve, sorry, where you can bypass that storage tank 
when needed, when you're not using it. So probably 99.9% .9 of the time. And then when you do need it, switch that valve over and then you can pump water from your tank. That's what I would do. An RV, you know, an inexpensive RV pump, no pressure tank and a bypass valve so that you only use it when you need it, but it's always there as stored water. So I hope that helps. I love that idea. I think that's a great outside the box thinking. Uh, that's something uh, a lot of people want to know. Can you backfeed through an outdoor tap? And yeah, for the most part you can. In my town here, the water uh, supply lines are in horrible shape and you tend to see 10 or 12 houses every spring with a ruptured water line. And what the town does to feed them is they hook into the neighbor's tap and then backfeed in through the outside tap and just turn off the main valve for the time being. So yeah, totally doable. I love your outside the box thinking. I think this is a great two is one, one is none, three is a guarantee, bit of redundancy built there. So keep it up. If you guys have any more questions like this, love answering them. Backup power, generators, fuel storage, um, power stations, entrepreneurship, handyman, content creation, anything or anything that you think you could send along to me, I'd love to answer for you guys. And if you'd like to check out what I'm doing right now, check out the workshop on YouTube. Go by. We have uh, three live streams a week. I call it Workshop Radio now, Thursday, Friday, and Sunday evening, 7 p.m. So come by, check that out. And as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. Now, I've done this here. But my situation is probably different than a lot of other people's might be. I have a 12-volt, it runs on AC though. It's a 12-volt sure flow pump, has an AC adapter in my shop. I have two 1,500-gallon rain catchment tanks on that back shop. And that pump is on demand, meaning until there's a need for pressure, it doesn't run. So it builds up a certain pressure, just shuts off. You turn the, the, the hose bib on, the pump kicks on. You turn the hose bib off, pump kicks back off. That is definitely the kind of pump that you want to use for something like this. The other side of it is I have a well, not city water. I have a pipe that goes into the side of my house that comes off that well pressure. The well is also an on-demand pressure pump. So is, unless the pressure drops on, on, on the use side of it, that pump's not just sitting there running nonstop, pounding water against it. And so if I'm in that situation, it's a temporary situation. And all I did was turn the cutoff valve to the water coming into the house from outside. So if power came back on, we're not co-mingling. Took a garden hose and hooked it up to the hose bib that... Get receives pressure and you know tightened it so it wouldn't leak. Put a couple hoses together, and I have a female female little mini hose that I use with my air compressor for some other stuff. Took it off of there and hooked it up to the hose bib and opened the hose bib up and got okay pressure. wasn't really great. You know you're not going to really be taking a shower really good or anything like that. But water come out of the sink. And that made life easier. That made life easier. And I originally was just going to run the hose through the window into the sink and put a valve on it. And then I thought, well, I can do this. So it did work. When the water came back on, what I did is I opened up the bathtubs in the sinks and turned and just let it run uh, for you know about four or five minutes to purge everything out of the tanks, uh, out of the pipes, because. 
the water's clean off the roof, but it's not filtered. Um, if we would have used it for drinking, we just we keep water on hand, so we didn't need to do that. I would run it through a Berkey. Anyway, with that, let's go on to. Um, and by the way, I went through one water outage without thinking of that, and I thought about it like right after it was done. And when I'm going to pretend I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't just come up with this idea. And the next time I had an issue with the well, I was able to do that, and we were able to have water until we were able. To, that was when my well pump just completely died. Anyway, um, let's hear now about being off grid and too hot, and using solar to power fans in a shed. Hey everybody, this is Sean Mills with Hack My Homestead, and today I have a question about solar-powered fans. So the question is, can you recommend components for a simple solar panel plus fan setup to ventilate an off-grid shed on sunny days? I have a 10-foot by 12-foot uninsulated shed with a metal roof. There is a narrow ventilation gap left by design along the top of the side walls where the roof hangs over, but the shed still gets unbearably hot in the long summer days here in Montana. I like to mount a small fixed solar panel aimed southwest and connect it more or less directly to a 12-volt DC ventilation fan with the idea that the more the sun shines and heats up my shed, the more the fan will run. Is this feasible? And if so, can you recommend a sub $100 panel along with any passive regulators or adapters that might be needed to make this work well? I do some electronics troubleshooting and repair in the course of my day job, so I'm not afraid of doing a little bit of custom wiring. There are kits available on Amazon, eBay, etc. that include a solar panel and small fan, but the reviews are mixed at best. So I'm not sure whether the whole concept is weak based on current solar technology and the laws of physics, or whether the reviews are bad only because these kits are made in China junk. Thank you, Noah in Western Montana. Well, Noah, uh, if I was doing this, I would go with a cheap solar panel or a used solar panel, uh, you know, one that's made very well and meant for residential or utility use that has been in service for five to seven years and is now being recycled. Um, I would add a linear current booster or an MPPT charge controller and use computer cooling fans. Uh, those cooling fans are pretty capable in terms of their cubic foot per minute per watt. Um, they're very efficient. They have very little draw. Uh, and you can find them in both 12-volt or 24-volt versions. So basically, you, you, you get your linear current booster or your MPPT charge controller. You put that in between the panel and the fans set for the appropriate voltage. And it does the work by, of converting the higher voltage coming in from the solar panel to the voltage that the actual device needs. And then the device just pulls whatever current that it needs to actually do the work. <clears throat> So uh, if you did that, you could daisy chain five or maybe ten or maybe even more of those fans, depending on how well they're working for you. Uh, there are some gable fan kits out there on the market, and the one good thing about those is they are already synced in terms of what the panel will put out versus what the fan needs, so you don't have that secondary device. However, those kits typically vastly underutilize the solar panel's potential output, so wiring up your own system is likely to be more efficient, particularly if you have limited space. Uh, now, there are some pretty good ones you can get through your hardware store like Home Depot and Lowe's. I have actually personally installed some Home Depot uh, gable fan kits, uh, not on my own personal property, but on other people's properties. 
Uh, now, but those are in the two to three hundred dollar range. Uh, and there are some cheaper ones that you can get on Amazon that are still good if they're installed correctly. Um, but like you said, there are mixed reviews. Sometimes you'll get a dud. Sometimes you'll get one that, uh, you know, the, there's a wire loose, uh, and it, it ends up arcing and burning the motor out and you don't know it until it stops working. Um, <clears throat> that's why I like the idea of kind of piecing this together so that you're making all the wiring connections. Um, one thing to remember, though, is that when you have an uninsulated shed in full sun, air movement's only going to do so much, uh, especially one with a metal roof. Metal's a fantastic thermal conductor. So you have this roof picking up a significant amount of radiant heat and then conducting that heat to the inside of the building. Now, the idea of putting a fan in place is introducing convection. Uh, so you're theoretically pushing cooler air through the room, and that cooler air takes some of the heat out of the warm air and from the warm underside of the roof. So the question is, can you create enough of an impact pulling the cooler air into the building and exiting it out the top of the, the uh, building to counteract the convective transfer that you're creating across the bottom of the roof? So when you don't have uh, your fan blowing air into this building, then it's just conductive heat, right? You're just conducting heat from the walls and the roof into the uh, structure. And because that heat doesn't really have anywhere to go, it builds up. That's why it's unbearably hot. So a vent at the top instead of at the bottom of the roof, along with another vent on the north side of the building, uh, closer towards the ground is going to create its own thermal chimney effect. So you're going to just have some airflow. You're going to create a path for the cool air to exit and continue to rise because that's what it wants to do. The heat wants to rise. Uh, and then that air exiting will create a draft where it's pulling the cooler air in. And then, of course, you can supercharge that with the fans. But the thing you want to be wary of is that when you start pushing that air, particularly across the bottom of the roof, you're actually introducing convective heat at that point. So you're creating a new layer of the heat to be transferred into the building. So you just have to make sure that you have enough airflow going uh, through there to kind of counteract that. So uh, I think that you might consider some shade, even if it's artificial shade like shade cloth or maybe planting some loofah or gourds or, uh, you know, cucumbers to where it's going to create some summer shade for that building that might actually have a more beneficial effect, uh, you know, per dollar of unit installed, so to speak, um, for, for that solution. Uh, and then once you've kind of shaded the building a little bit and, and reduced that amount of radiant heat uh, pickup, uh, then you'll probably have a lot more um, positive results from from the computer fan idea. So uh, good luck with the system. There's definitely some systems out there on the market, relatively cheap uh, to get you started, uh, or you can piece and part these things together. I think I looked up a good solid 12-volt uh, computer fan for like 7 bucks. you know, so you could put like five of those in, with, <coughs> excuse me, with a $50 charge controller from Renogy and a used solar panel that you might be able to pick up for like, you know, 75 bucks, maybe 30 or $40 worth of wiring uh, to get this system in place. And then if it didn't work out, well, then now you're not stuck with a kit 
that doesn't work. Now you you have a solar panel that you can use for other things. You've got a linear current booster or a charge controller that you can use for other things, and you just toss the fan or replace it with something else. So good luck with the system. I hope it works out. Y'all uh, keep getting these questions in the jack, and I'll keep getting them answered. Thanks. Great stuff from Sean, and this is kind of one of those things that's like a really great way to use solar power. Uh, you really need it when the sun's out. So when the sun's out, you have solar power. It's not expensive. It works. It's very efficient. You can't say that about everything with solar. There's a lot of times you're using solar, and you're doing it either because you just want it, and you want the redundancy if the grid's down, or because you don't have grid and you need to, and it's expensive, and it's not the most efficient thing, but it's the best power available to you. This is one of those situations where I think people can benefit from this even if you're not completely off-grid. If you have a, a building somewhere that just doesn't have power run to it, and it would be really expensive to run power to it, and all you want to do is get some ventilation, this is a great way to go. A great way to go. Next up, we ain't heard from Jessica Dixie Mills for a while. She's been gallivanting around the world on the trail like she always does. But recently she had a pretty scary event. She ended up being just fine. But she reached out and asked me if I'd like a segment on what happens when you hit the SOS button. And I said, absolutely. And here's the story of what happened. Hey, y'all. Jessica Dixie Mills here from Homemade Wanderlust over in YouTube land to tell y'all about a recent experience I had. On August 28th, I was backpacking in the Sawtooth Wilderness in Idaho, and I hit the SOS button on my InReach satellite device and was evacuated. I have a full video documenting the experience that I highly recommend you watch just to get the full idea of what happens when you call for help in the backcountry, but I've got some pointers that I want to share with y'all that I learned from this experience. First, it's absolutely vital, and I beg y'all to have some sort of device you can call for help on. At a bare minimum, having one of those one-time personal locator beacons is a must. They don't require a messaging subscription like spot devices and in-reach devices, but they also don't have that communication back and forth through satellites like in-reach and similar devices. And apparently now, if you have the iPhone 14, they have this capability to send search and rescue your location and let emergency services know that you're calling for help. So that's actually really cool and better than nothing. But I just really prefer the in-reach type of device because when I pushed the button for help, I was able to message with them about my condition and be kept in the loop on what my rescue plan was. I will absolutely never be in the backcountry for any reason without one of these. And Having that messaging capability, it lets people at home know that you're okay, even if you only check in once a day. That way, if you go silent, they can send for help for you. So, And even if you don't backpack, if you're just an outdoorsman or you're driving on roads a lot without having service frequently, have one of these. Next, pushing the button is not always black and white. I figured if I ever had to call for help that my leg bone would be like sticking out of my flesh or I'd be pouring blood. But in my instance, it wasn't like that. I went out on a trip and for the first few days, I didn't feel like myself. I had low energy, felt weak. My heart was racing. 
I was short on breath, uh, and I tried to justify it by saying, oh, well, my pack is a little heavier this time, or I'm just being a baby, you know, haven't been out for a while. But by the end of the third day, it hit me that it might be a medication that I'd started a month and a half or so ago for hormonal acne. When I was prescribed that by my dermatologist, he said that it was also used as a blood pressure medication. It's called spironolactone. Hopefully, I'm pronouncing that properly. But anyway, he said that most people tolerated it fine. But he didn't tell me that there could be an issue with high potassium from this medication and to look out for that. So this is a lesson in not blindly trusting a doctor saying, oh, you'll be fine. Um, but in my defense, and I guess his, I had no issues with it leading up to my hike, even when I was working out and training. Uh, but I still think that that's what was going on with me on trail. But by the fourth morning, I decided to stop taking the medication. So I hadn't had it for 24 hours. But when I sat up in my tent that morning, my heart rate was around 105. And I have an Apple Watch that cued me into that. Uh, casually walking around camp, my heart rate was 135. So I knew putting on my pack and trying to walk even the 18 miles just back to my car um, was not a good idea. And then I started feeling a tightness in my chest and my Apple Watch indicated to me through the ECG function that I was in atrial fibrillation. And I even waited an hour in my tent thinking, okay, maybe this is just anxiety and freaking myself out. Um, you know, I tried to lay there and watch some garbage I had downloaded to my phone on Netflix. And uh, it still repeatedly tells me that I'm in atrial fibrillation. Now, Apple Watches may not always be perfectly accurate, but they can certainly show you when things are not normal for you. And seeing a low oxygen, for example, for me sleeping at night, had me do a sleep study test. And I found out that my little scrawny self has a mild case of sleep apnea. So pay attention to these parameters. But anyway, after I repeatedly showed that I was an AFib, I decided it was time to push the SOS button, especially considering my family history. Uh, my father died of a heart attack at age 32. So anyway, my next takeaway is it's not an instant process pushing the button. I guess this one seems like a no-brainer, but I just want to remind you that when you push that button, the helicopter doesn't drop a rope from the sky as soon as you hit it. It took about three hours for search and rescue to get to me, and I feel like that time was impressive. And then it took four and a half hours for me to get to the ER from when I first pushed the button. So my point in this is if you're not sure that you'll be okay in five hours, call for help right now. Next, consider the weather. I was thinking to myself, maybe I could just wait it out a day in my tent, you know, chill, see if the medicine getting out of my system for another day makes me better. That was not a good way to think, um, but that's what I was thinking. Uh, and then I looked at the weather report on my inReach, which is another plus for this type of device that it'll show you a weather report, even when you have no cell service. Uh, and it showed that the next day it was going to be storming. So I knew that I would have been stuck out there at least two days because nobody's coming out with a helicopter in bad weather. Uh, next, it's normal to feel embarrassed. Y'all, I cried. I felt like a fool. Uh, I've, I've been a solo backpacker for years. I'm independent and I hate asking for help. You know, I can do it myself, right? <laughs> but uh, I, it just felt very embarrassing, especially because I was able to walk. I wasn't incapacitated. I torn in my, tormented myself over this because, you know, I just felt like, again, search and rescue is for people who just can't physically 
do anything. Um, and I probably waited longer to push the button than I should have, but I tried to reverse it in my mind. And I felt like if somebody that I loved, a friend or family, uh, was having these same symptoms, I'd tell them push the damn button. So if you're even thinking about pushing it, it probably means you need to do it immediately because never in my eight years of backpacking and all the time that I've spent on trail over 10,000 miles now, did I think, you know, man, maybe I should push this button today. So again, if you're considering it, you probably need to. And all of the search and rescue crew that picked me up and the hospital staff assured me that I did the right thing. And they said that oftentimes people don't push it and go missing. And then that ends up much more taxing on them and their loved ones. So, um, Another tip, being spotted is super important in a search and rescue situation. I always encourage people to have brightly colored, colored gear for this. Uh, I know that some people, you know, want to not be seen on trail and whatever, but uh, when it's an emergency situation, you need to have the option of some kind of gear that you can have out to be spotted. Uh, in our messaging back and forth with search and rescue, they asked me what I was wearing, how much I weighed, all of this stuff, but they were trying to find some, you know, sort of colors to be looking for. And when the helicopter flew over, I had a light blue tint. So I actually waved that so that they could spot me more easily. Uh, but the color blended in with nearby rocks. One of the medics told me, but she did say that that motion of me waving it is what helped me be spotted. Now, they did have my coordinates, so they would have eventually found me. But again, sometimes time is of the essence. Uh, I normally have an emergency Mylar blanket on me. I didn't this time because I actually used it in a little trial run of my day hiking gear. I wanted to see, you know, the things, the 10 essentials that I have in my pack if I had to overnight unexpectedly, how comfortable or uncomfortable would I be with that gear? So I do have a video out about that. Um, but unfortunately, I didn't replace it. And so I didn't have it on me. But those are lightweight and really cheap. So I would say definitely have one of these if for no other purpose than being spotted or, you know, if your sleeping bag ends up soaked and you need something to be warm with. But uh, some people suggested a signaling mirror might have helped, but I honestly don't know how to use one of those. Um, if you do and you feel confident that you can angle it at the helicopter that's flying over quickly, then go for it. Uh, I think I would still just do the Mylar blanket. But, you know, also on cloudy days, I don't know how well that mirror is going to work. So I think having another option would be good. Always tell someone at home that knows your medical history, where you're going, when you expect to be on trail, off trail, and check in with them if you have one of these Garmin devices. Uh, my mom was listed as my emergency contact in my Garmin account, and they called her as soon as I pushed that button to find out if she had any information on my condition. Next, have insurance or some kind of coverage. I hate that a consideration that came to my mind when I pushed that button was how much this was about to cost me and could I just limp out on my own so that I didn't go broke over this experience. I had health insurance that was set to kick in in four more days from when I was rescued. Um, so that kind of sucked, but uh, I didn't think that I had any search and rescue coverage. Um, I ended up being wrong about that, which I'll tell you about in just a second. But if I had died on the trail. And this is what made me kind of let go of the the expenses of this. Um, you know, I knew if I had fallen out and died and someone came and revived me and they said, all right, you've got two options. You can pay us 50 grand over, you know, the rest of your years, or 
uh, we're just going to kill you again and you're going to be dead. Which would you prefer? And I definitely would take the option of paying that money to come back to life. So that to me made it a no brainer to call for help. Um, but anyway, as far as coverage options go, if you only take like one trip a year, something like world nomads insurance policies will cover, cover your travel expenses, some medical expenses, search and rescue fees, uh, for like 50 bucks, depending on where you're going. Uh, but if you're going to take more than one trip a year or you're outdoors a lot using the inReach or in situations where you might need some help, uh, other options might make more sense. Like if you don't have health insurance, check into American Alpine Club for $100 a year. They will cover your search and rescue costs and medical expenses up to a certain amount. Uh, but if you do have health insurance, then you might just want to look at something like the coverage you can get through the company Garmin if you have the Garmin device. Um, that's $39.95 per year, and they only cover the cost of transporting you to the hospital up to $100,000. So what did all this cost me? Well, I haven't gotten a helicopter bill yet, but I was digging around in my Garmin account, and it turns out I did have the insurance when I got my inReach device like five years ago or something. Apparently, I signed up for the auto renewal, and at that time it was $29.95 and covers up to $50,000 of the expenses of transporting you to the hospital from the wilderness. So I will still be responsible for my $2,000 in medical expenses, but that's a lot better than that and the helicopter. So uh, I did get a full workup done at the hospital, and now that I'm back home, I've checked in with my cardiologist. I've got a 14-day heart monitor going. I'm going to do a stress test, and uh, my cardiologist asked me, you know, just let me make sure you're clear before you get out in the woods. I still think it was the medicine, but better safe than sorry. And I've decided to just have acne rather than, you know, be dead. So, <laughs> um, I'm trying to prevent taking up the whole show here. I know I've rambled on longer than my typical segment would be, so I'm going to leave it at this. But if Jack wants to have me on to dig deeper into the situation, I'm happy to do that. I think that it's useful to know what happens when you push that search and rescue button. So I'm going to send Jack the link to my video where I documented that experience. So you can see it if you're interested. He can put it in the show notes. But if you have any questions in general about backpacking, or YouTubing, get them to Jack, and I'll be glad to answer them. All right, bye, y'all. See, that that's literally potentially life-saving information right there, and I want to reinforce that where she was, three hours for somebody to get to her, was impressive. It's actually very impressive. I don't remember the guest name, but quite a few years ago, I had a guy on who works on search and rescue teams. He's a, a star volunteer. And he told a story about a lady that broke an ankle at basically like a park people day hike in. She was about a mile and a half in, not far at all. And it took almost three hours to get her out. Now you'd think somebody just jumped their ass on a four-wheeler and go get her. And I, I don't know, I don't remember the whole story. Maybe that wasn't just possible. Maybe it wasn't the kind of place... You can get a vehicle in or whatever. But, I mean, this is, I don't know about you, but I can cover a mile and a half pretty damn quick. And if I had, you know, three other dudes and we were litter carrying someone, I, I'd get somebody the hell out of a mile and a half, unless you're talking cliffside. And I know it wasn't that bad, whatever it was. But it still takes time because 
This is something I think a lot of people don't understand. A lot of these guys work on these SAR teams and all. That's not their job. They are, in fact, volunteers. So there has to be kind of an activation, and then there's a lag before a response, and then the team gets together with a game plan. How are we going to do this? Where's this person at? Do we know where they're at? Are we looking for them, or are we going to them? What's the situation? What resources and assets do we have? Man, you might wait a day or two to be evac in a situation like this. There's just that dude, I think he's in Turkey, uh, somewhere overseas. They took them days to get his ass out of a cave. Now, he was way down. He was like some special expert or something that was down in this cave mapping it. Um, but he was like one of the foremost experts at this stuff, and it's kind of similar to Jessica's. He didn't get hurt. He came down ill. I don't remember what particular was wrong, but he had some internal bleeding and stuff. This was really serious. So, yeah, definitely. And then being able to just let people know you're okay is a huge thing. And i got to be honest, I, I did a section hike. I've talked about this before. In 1993, when I got out of the Army, I walked from Pennsylvania to New Hampshire. And I was kind of like, I'm done now. It wasn't like there was no goal in it. For, I'm just going to walk until I'm I was kind of like Forrest Gump, before Forrest Gump. You know, he ran until he was tired. I'm going to walk until I feel like I'm okay. I went weeks without talking to anybody. I had no, there was no cell phones or anything like that back then. I had no way to get in touch with anybody. And I look at that back now and I go, that was really dangerous and kind of dumb. And then I also kind of give myself some forgiveness of all the people I met. Nobody really had anything like this. Nobody had a sat phone or some kind of ET phone home SOS button. There were, you know, the people that had cell phones had them in a bag or a giant brick one or something. Like, nobody who was out hiking the trail had anything like that back then. And the reason I point that out is because the stuff that will keep you alive is so available and relative to what it does, so affordable today. That she's right. If you go back into these situations, you need to make sure you have a way to get yourself out of them if you need it. And we got to not take the mindset with us that we have at home in peacetime, so to say, right? Where like, well, if I feel worse, I'll go in an hour type of thing. Because, again, you mash that button, it might be three hours, it might be six hours, it might be tomorrow. And if you're in a situation where you are degrading in your condition, this can be catastrophic if you wait too long. I mean, there's risk in everything. It would be catastrophic anyway. Some of the places I was on, that that's one section of the trail, like between Vermont and New Hampshire, there are places if you did something stupid, you would have fell off and over the end, no one would even have known where to look for you. Uh, so there's risk in everything, but that doesn't mean we have to be, ca- we, we, we can just afford to be cavalier about all of it. All right, so let's, I want to hit my segment today, I'm going to be pretty quick with it, less on how and more why. I want to talk a little bit about hydroponics today. I know there's some people in my audience just have this irrational hatred of it or something, but this is the reality about hydroponics. It grows perfectly good produce. Perfectly good produce. And if you're using a good fertilizer with the macro and the micronutrients, it's very nutrient-dense. And I'm going to say this. I don't care if you're growing you know, your salad greens... In soil that is, you know, cultivated by virgins from the Caribbean islands who, you know, roll cigars on their inner thighs and then bless the soil and blow smoke on it or whatever. I don't care what you do. You're not getting the bulk of your nutrient 
from lettuce and arugula, the end, go out. So I'm not going to even go down that road. What you do get is a really great product that tastes good, that looks good, that does have some decent nutrient value to it, some minerals and things like that. Um, it's also very expensive and goes really well with, like, well, I don't know, steak. And it's so easy to grow. And there's also a massive amount of flavor that can come from this. So arugula, to me, is one of the great greens to just take a big handful of. And anything you're stir-frying or whatever, right at the end, kill the heat, throw it in there, wilt it in. You get the bitterness, you get the color, you get all that flavor. It's fantastic that way. Same with spinach, just you don't get the bite that you get from arugula. Basil, fresh basil, a chefinata basil, which is where you roll the leaf up like a little cigar and you cut thin ribbons of it on top of food at the end. Fresh things like that are just fantastic. Cilantro, etc. And to be able to produce that in the middle of winter is pretty awesome. And I just kind of give you an idea of like, the size of a system that would grow at least a few salads or uh, herbs for dinner and stuff like that a week for a family of four or six. I mean, you look at something like four of the little black and yellow totes, like the tough totes, that you can easily grow six plants per bucket. That's uh, 24 plants. That's two dozen plants. You grow them in cycles of 12 and 12, lots of variety. You know, you can do a couple lettuce, a couple arugula, a couple basil, a couple other lettuce, right? And you have lots of color, lots of flavor, maybe some cilantro. And you need a system that size, like two four-foot grow lights. So like 20 bucks, that's, that's high side. You're going to end up buying a four-pack or a six-pack and having some extra ones to do something with or whatever. You need some net cut cups. Just go ahead and get the rapid rooter plugs and reuse them. You can get four or five, six grows out of one plug. It just makes everything easier. Hit them with a little peroxide in between grows to clean them. And set that up on a shelf somewhere. And do Kratky. Kratky is where we mix. Um, I can't explain the whole thing today, but basically Kratky, you mix the hydroponics fertilizer with water you put it in the tub you put your plants in them okay and then you let the water evaporate and as the water evaporates it forms a hairnet root system and the gap in gives the plant roots all the air they need and the the longer roots chase the the, the moisture down so that that continues to grow and you can add some to it, but you don't want to bring it all the way back up. So generally, when I'm doing this, I'll let it go down to about 25%, and I'll bring it back to 50 and I never have a problem doing that. Or you can throw just, you know, two, uh, two aquarium air pumps with the long, like, foot-long stones and go with a better air pump, like an Aheem 200 or an Aheem 400, and then you can each pump can run two of them, and then you can just keep them topped up. And that's it. I mean, that's everything. A couple jugs of uh, hydroponics fertilizer or some, uh, uh, w w um, the word I'm looking for is master blend. The master blend fertilizer uh, is a three-part fertilizer. It's made out of powder. Uh, it's got a micro, a macro, and an Epsom salt to it. You mix it together. You can 
buy enough of that stuff to, you know, 25 pound kit and you're good for four or five years of this type of growing off of it. And it, as long as you keep it stored airtight, it will last that long. If you don't keep it stored airtight, uh, specifically one of the three powders will take on a bunch of atmospheric moisture and turn into a hard brick. Ask me how I know. So keep it sealed up and you won't have that problem. I put it in quart basin jars, good tight lid on it, and it lasts for damn near ever. Uh, my point is that a hundred bucks to two hundred bucks maximum, and two hundred bucks would be a nice setup with like top end pumps and and what have you. And I'm talking I'm talking about air pumps here, not water pumps for removing water, because that starts you have cascades, you have more leak problems. Getting started indoors, either do cracky or do air pump, and you're you're able to produce a huge amount of food. I mean, a massive amount of food. And if you decide you want to produce more food, you already know what you're doing. Just add two more uh, tubs. And I said six. You really can grow about eight. Use two-inch net cups. You go three and three and two in the center, right, uh, as far as your pattern on the lid. But I think six is enough. And the other thing is, you know, those plants, they don't need much room in the beginning. They're tiny. And as they grow out, they need more room. So if you set up another uh, tub and you just cram 12 holes into it right up against each other, or you set up a little, like a little bus tray tub or something like that with some foam over it, and you can do start 12 plants at a time, you can always have another 12 plants ready to go in. So you can have 12 plants that are mature and being harvested, 12 plants that are like a week or two away, and 12 plants that are ready to take over when you pull the last ones out. And you can get that cycle going, and you can produce, I guarantee you more vegetables. You would be surprised how much that little system like that can, can do for you. And I just think when something can give you that much for that little cost, and you can gain the experience, and you get the, the ability to eat the freshest vegetables and herbs possible. And this is what I mean by fresh as possible. If I have in the winter, because I can't grow lettuce here in the summer. That's another thing. If I want to grow these types, some of these types of crops, basil does great here in the summer. Lettuce in the summer here, arugula in the summer here, just forget about it. The arugula will grow, and it is the bitterest crap you'll ever eat, and the lettuce just dies. So I use this for summer leaf production and for winter leaf production. And the fact that you can do that for so little money, and eat that stuff so fresh. But let's say that it was fall, and I had hydroponic lettuce in the house, and I have hydroponic lettuce out in the, I have regular soil-grown lettuce out in the garden, and I want some basil, right? I want some basil to put on some food that I've just cooked. I can literally go to the system, pull the basil off it, chop it up, and throw it straight on the food. I don't even have to walk out and get it. That's what I mean when I say fresh as possible. And if you have any kind of bias against this stuff, that's you, I was going to say let it go. No, hold on to it. Uh, hold your breath. Turn blue. Uh, insist that you're right. Insist that it's destroying the planet or whatever and go on about your life. If you're a normal person who thinks logically and reasonably, this is something that, especially as we head into fall winter, it's a good time if you've never done it before to look at doing so now. When you get into it, you'll hear things about pH and EC meters and total dissolved solids and stuff like that. 
the more sophisticated you get with this, the more that stuff becomes important. But I guarantee you, if you go ahead and just use water out of your damn sink, mix the master blend shit the way you're supposed to, and follow the instructions that I have on some of my web, uh, some of my uh, other podcasts, and I'll add some links to the show notes today for you on some of the podcasts I've done on doing this, the basics of it. And you try like four varieties of lettuce, at least two of them are going to do well. Arugula is going to do well. It just is. Basil is going to do well. It just is. So there might be a particular variety of something that if you don't get the, you know, you hold your thumb right when you put it in the thing and hold your pinky in the air and pray to the EC meter gods that it won't do really well. But this type of stuff grows, it's just easy. There's no reason to make it hard. I have an EC meter and a pH meter somewhere. I don't even know where they are. I don't care. I don't care because food grows. Anyway, just and I'm not saying that those things aren't. You start growing tomatoes and peppers and you're doing it in a greenhouse. No, yeah, okay, okay. Lettuce and herbs indoors and forget about pest problems. You don't have them. Forget about it dying because it didn't rain because it doesn't happen. Forget about it getting too hot or too cold because it doesn't happen. And that's why it just grows so fantastically well. I even have one friend. He takes his hydroponic stuff and takes a jar just of water and will pull the whole plant roots plug and all out of out of the grow box, stick it in a small, I think he uses three-inch cups, and they fit into a small mouth ball jar. I think that's the, the ratio. And when he has people for dinner, he'll put four or five jars, each with a different lettuce or spinach or arugula, on the table with a pair of scissors. And you cut your own salad, and then when dinner's over, you put the plugs back in, and it's, it's cut and come again, and it starts to grow back. It's pretty damn flexible. I don't know how you're going to do that with a garden. I'm just saying. All right. With that, oh, one more thing, watercress. When you start doing this, just go to, like, Albertsons or whatever grocery stores near you. Buy yourself a living plug of watercress. Start cloning it, and you can grow all the watercress you want forever with a system like this. It will never fail you. All right, with that, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. I'm going to wrap up quick here. Um, remember, tomorrow, the 16th, Saturday, 0930, TSP 23 is on sale. Hope to see a lot of new faces and a lot of old faces at this one. This is probably going to be the best one we've ever done. With that, has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month. You never have to pay There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way